Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. Today, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick and Dr. Ingrid Farrow are joined by Dr. Jill Firth. Jill received her PhD from Ridley College, Melbourne, where she is currently a lecturer in Hebrew and Old Testament. Jill is an ordained Anglican priest, and she is trained as a spiritual director in the Ignatian tradition. She is currently revising her dissertation for publication and preparing to write a commentary on Jeremiah. Jill is an editor of the book Grounded in the Body, in Time and Place, in Scripture, a collective of papers by Australian women scholars in the evangelical tradition. Jill, I am so excited that you're joining Ingrid and I on the Alabaster Jar. Thank you so much. I've been really looking forward to it, Lynn, Um, having met you both in different places. It's terrific to be here. Oh, thank you. Yes, well, and you are uh, living in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, that's, uh, I've, I've been able to visit your lovely college, Ridley College there, um, but you all have been experiencing COVID in, uh, boy, just a, a really difficult, well, it's been a difficult time for all of us. How, how has the time been for you these last, well, I think you told me over 600 days now. Yeah, so um, Melbourne went for the hard lockdown plan. You know, so that we we had last year at this time, we had like two cases because we were so careful with the lockdown. But with the Delta variant, it's just gone absolutely insane as it has everywhere, though our immunisations are going pretty well now. Um, But it has been very strange to be locked down. Sometimes we couldn't travel more than 5K. We've had curfew um, in the more recent times to try and slow down the spread. So we're all, you know, pretty tired as everyone is, Zoom fatigue, uh, missing people looking forward to getting out with the restaurants have just reopened. Mm. Oh, so you've not had restaurants. You've not had any, how do you do your grocery shopping? So you, you can grocery shop and go to the chemist. Um, There are a few things that are click and collect like, you know, um, essential supplies for repairing your house, but theaters, restaurants, everything like that has been closed. You can get takeaway, um, but you can't, you haven't been able to, you know, eat inside. Mm. It's so hard for me to imagine because I think of your beautiful city so alive and everybody walking along the river and, oh, it's really hard. You, um, you worked for, uh, uh, your, uh, as I've mentioned, you're in uh, Melbourne and you teach at Ridley College, but um, when you finished your undergrad work, you, uh, you went with your husband to rural Australia, is that right? And worked yeah, right. Uh, in churches there. Um, can you talk a little bit about that time? Yeah, so um, when he was ordained, we went straight to uh, rural Australia to a small country town. The first one had uh, 100 people. The second one had 350 people. So when people talk, talk about, you know, I was in a small town, I'm like, yeah, but did you have like 5,000 people or did you have like 100 people? And uh, I just learned so much from those people. Yeah, um, community um, honesty, you know, really being grounded. It was because I'd been a city person and a university student who knew everything. So to go to this place where people were so, um, you know, real and um, just genuine, it was fantastic. Mm. You mentioned the word grounded. And of course, we're going to be talking about that. Your book that you co-edited with Denise Cooper Clark, 
grounded in the body, in time and place and in scripture. Um, and, and I wanted to get a little bit of your background uh, before diving into the book, because, um, because I do, as you say, your, your experiences prior to, uh, to editing this book uh, were really influential uh, from living in rural Australia. And then you went to Hong Kong, which is not rural. <laughs> so tell me a little about that. Yeah, so between um, the, the rural part and then we worked in the suburb and then we lived in um, Indigenous place for a while in Groot Island in the Northern Territory, which is next to Queensland for people whose Australian map is not strong. Um, so I was on an island with Indigenous people who were still on their own land. So that was a, a tremendous experience learning from them, um, just so many things. And then we went from there. That population had 2,000 people on the tiny island, and then we, which was bigger than, um, you know, the little towns we'd lived in. And then we um, went to Hong Kong, which was about the same landmass, but with millions of people. And we were explaining to the Indigenous people, oh, you know, we're going to this place and they all live in these tall towers. And they're like, why would they do that? Because they're living on their own land, you know, with fishing. And yeah, so the, the Hong Kong experience was incredible. We went um, in 1990 to help with the 1997 handover, you know, help churches when the um, place was going back to China. So it was a very highly emotional time. People, um, tons of citywide prayer, a lot of people becoming Christians. The Christian population doubled in that time. It wasn't, it wasn't due to us, but, you know, just due to the enormous um, spiritual vitality of Hong Kong at that time and since. Mm. Yeah, yes. And so um, after that, you came, you came to uh, teach at Ridley or no? You had, you've had, um, during this time, you also got your PhD. So tell us a little bit about that, about that journey. Yeah, so um, I came back from Hong Kong uh, to Melbourne. My husband was had a job next door to Ridley, and I thought I, I had actually tried to study at Ridley when I was like 18, and they said, go away, you're too young. So I came back 25 years later and said, I, I don't think you, <laughs> you know, you have to find a new excuse, and of course they let me in. And uh, so I did an MDiv and then some other study, and then I thought, um, you know, what's on the bucket list? Too old to be a ballerina? but I'd still like to do a PhD. So um, I enrolled for the PhD in 2010 and finished in 2016. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, when you, uh, and you worked on the, the Old Testament, and I know we'll be getting to uh, your contribution in this book, which is the uh, on, uh, chapter on Jeremiah, which I found so fascinating, but I've, I've, uh, built up the, the drama and mentioning this book. And now we're actually going to talk about it. This book grounded in the body in time and place and in scripture. It's a collection of essays written by women from all across Australia. Tell me about the genesis of this project. What, what made it so, I mean, it's such a special collection. I loved reading through these essays. Um, talk a little bit about how this book came about. Yeah. So um, it had um, sort of, a long history that wasn't anything to do with actually making the book. We began um, with a writing group, which was some lecturers, some students, and some, I call them practitioners, you know, people who are like vicars in their churches, all women. It was a women's writing group because, you know, there's all this male writing out there and we wanted to write for women. Some of us were already published. Some of us were about to get published. Some of us, you know, hadn't got any publications. And um, so that was fantastic. And then 
um, Tim, uh, not Tim, um, Brian Rosner and Mike Bird said uh, to me actually at a faculty conference, Jill, we've got Lynn Kohik coming to Australia. Would you like to do a small, <laughs> so you, might, you probably don't know this. I don't know um, this story. This is a no, surprise. For those yes, out I, there in uh, listening, there's a surprise look on my face. You can't see it, but I'm surprised. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, they, they, I, think, I think you were going to Adelaide and, and Mike said, you know, she's great. We could get her here. And Brian said, yeah, you could have a symposium with like a dozen academic women. And I'm like, okay, but we won't be doing a symposium with a dozen academic women. We're going to see how many, you know, students, um, people who are writing stuff, because there weren't that many actual academic women, you know, to have to a symposium. Um, but we just wanted to make it as wide as we could and get people in. So our first um, conference was actually generated by these two blokes, which I'm, you know, very grateful for. Uh, and you were our first guest, you know, international mega guest speaker. And that was so great. And so that we said, oh, we've got to do this again. So um, Mike said, I could get you Katja Kavret. And we're like, okay, well, let's go for publishing because that's right up our thing. So then the second year she told us all these tricks about publishing as well as many other just exquisite um, personal, you know, stories of uh, being a woman in academia. And so the next year um, we made up for ourselves. We got kind of a little bit independent. We thought we'll, we'll go to the other side of the world. So we got Paula Gooda and she came and we thought, and we'll have presentations because we hadn't had papers. So we had 24 papers by women and we designed that one to be the book. We thought we've had culture cover it. We've had Lynn Kohik. Now we're going to make a book. So we made a book out of that, which is the book we're talking about. And then the next year, this last year, we had uh, Lucy Pepiat also from UK and we had 30, 30 something, 32 maybe papers, but it was on Zoom this year. So we've had real conferences, we've had Zoom, you know, we've had papers, we made a book. It's been a wonderful journey. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly had uh, a fabulous time at, um, at Ridley. And I do recall you kind of opening up that conference and... I think, as I recall, the first time, you know, out of the gate and you had people, you had women fly in from all the states, from the territories, you almost hit 100. Is that right? I mean, yeah, that's right. There's yeah. such a desire for for women to connect and to write together and to share together. Yeah. And then having after me, Katja Kovret, who's at Zondervan, senior editor there, and uh, and then the uh, Paula Gooda, as you say, and and Lucy. I mean, it's it's incredible the um, the interest and and how much this is is growing as women want to um, uh, to have their voices heard. Uh, and yeah, that in fact, there's a, in the uh, introduction in your book, uh, one of the lines is, you know, there's no women in these bibliographies, you know, and you set out to uh, to change that. All the essays are just so well written, and they cover a a range of backgrounds um, that the that the women have. Um, are there particular essays that stand out in in your mind that um, kind of capture the the goals that you that you want to share? I mean, I'm not going to ask you what your favorite essay is. That that's not a fair question. But just help us kind of get a flavor for the variety that's in the that's in the book. Yeah. So I think my favorite. I do have a favourite, is Teresa Lau's uh, paper, Mary, Martha and Me, where she talks about her experience as a Chinese woman and all the cultural stuff around that. 
She says, I can't speak for all Chinese women because I'm a Malaysian woman, blah, blah, blah. So she makes it very clear that her children who are Australian born have a different experience from her. So she's very located, but it's not like, well, you know, I'm so great or no, none of you can understand me, but like I'm bringing who I am. And then she goes into, I'll just give away a punchline about Mary and Martha. She says, the difference is, I just, I, I like wake up chuckling in the night about this. The difference is Martha tells Jesus what to do. Tell that woman to come and help me in the kitchen. But Mary sits at his feet and says, you're the Lord, you tell me what to do. So it's not about activity or passivity. It's about who's the Lord here, the person telling Jesus what to do or the person responding. And of course, Martha gets very good press later in the Lazarus story. So we're not down on Martha, just, you know, exploring that. So I love that one. Another one um, that everybody is loving is Brooke Prentice's work. She's uh, an Indigenous Waka Waka woman, and she's written about the land and loving the land. And I got so much insight from that about Indigenous attitude to land and how, how that connects to the biblical um, picture. You know, in, in Jeremiah, <laughs> we've got to get to Jeremiah in the end, yes. um, the land mourns you know, because of the disasters and God mourns because of the destruction of the land. Like he's not just like, oh, that's just where I put people till they repent of their sins and then they wish to heaven. He's very concerned about the land and it, that was very moving. Mm. And and the third one I'll mention, I could t- just talk about them all, is um, Moira Dale's paper on purity. She worked in Muslim background areas in the Middle East for years and years and years and she brings that insight to Western culture. So interesting. Mm. Yeah, and I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about your chapter on Jeremiah. You you tackle the tough, there's some tough issues, and we know it gets some very bad press. Uh, Jeremiah is accused of being misogynist, and so is God, and so forth, but you handle it so well. T- uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, your process of going through that, and uh, and especially I, I, uh, I loved your your uh, reference to Jeremiah's rhetorical strategy using the genre of caricature. So just tell us about that and uh, about the chapter. It was so good. Thank you. Yeah, I, um, when I started to teach Jeremiah, it was just a few years ago. I I had been really familiar with the book, but I um, had been a teaching assistant to Andrew Abernathy, who's now at Wheaton, and he taught the book. And one of the students cried in the part about God's tears in in the class and all the other students were so moved and I thought the God of Jeremiah who is this guy so I came to the pictures of the dark pictures about women with the understanding that God was a God who was weeping over this whole thing so it a lot of people who write about the women in Jeremiah are like oh God hates women and the Bible hates women but I've got this weeping God as my background yeah. Uh, so I thought, like, what, what is going on here? Why are these pictures so stark and brutal? And it helped me to think that, or I, you know, obviously and, through reading this stuff, that Jeremiah was doing it for a purpose because he changes how he pictures women as he goes through the book and how he does the whole thing. He seems to have a rhetorical strategy of, first of all, kind of shocking people, and that's where the ugly images are. And then he moves to invite people to pity so he, he does quite different images and then later he does some other things. So I thought, well, what if, if this is rhetoric, I treat it differently, like it's the pandemic, right? At the beginning we're like, oh, you know, some people are having a problem elsewhere and then we're like, wear your mask, stay at home. This is really important. And the urgency, 
you know, shifts us to a different place. Everybody's dying now. You know, this is Delta. This is really bad. So, um, so you know, could you tell I, us I, a little bit about, you know, some of those images that um, that are difficult, uh, the, the images and the metaphors in Jeremiah? What are some of those? You mentioned a lot of them happen at the beginning. Yeah. What what are some of those? Yeah. yeah so um, it, it, he, he actually just heaps up, you know, one thing after another. He's got like a sort of a shameless woman who's dashing about um, telling God, look, I don't care. You know, this is just all too hard. Uh, he's got a quite an ugly animal image of um, a, a donkey sniffing the heat, uh, a wild ass at home sniffing the wheat, the heat. Who can restrain her lust? You know, just, it's not very nice. I wouldn't like anyone to say that about me. Um, and then she says, "Oh, it's hopeless. I'm just going after strangers." And she's she's like unrestrained and she's loud and, she, and she's she's not very nice. Um, and then there is a couple of later images which are, in my opinion, and, you know, through the work that I've looked at, they're about the woman going into exile. So they're very painful. They're not, they're not the rough, cruel image of the first part. They're very gentle and tragic of this woman who thought she had the lovers who were like Egypt and, you know, the different countries, political alliances that she thought were so great, and then um, they attack her. So she's like, you know, I thought I, I had boyfriends and now I, they turn out to be bad guys. But many scholars say that she's raped. And this raises so many issues for us that, and particularly in Chapter 13, it says that God kind of presides over this um, situation. That, and some people actually say God rapes daughter Zion, which, you know, if that's true, that's not a God any of us want to be the friend of. But as I um, have looked into that particular set of images, I think that it's quite clear from scripture that going into exile, the, the Hebrew word for that, galah, it's the same as having your clothes taken off, galah. And something they did in the ancient world was strip the captives. There are many um, carvings of actually male captives going to, into exile naked and chained together. Um, so I, th I think if you just read it through that lens, that that is actually, that seems to be in Isaiah and Ezekiel, all these really ugly images are actually of um, the figure representing the nation being stripped and taken into exile. It's not about rape. So it is ugly about the stripping, but that is what actually happened. He says, look, and this is something else picking up what Ingrid said. It's not that he says, I want this to happen. He says, if you don't change your ways, this is what will happen. It's a danger warning. Don't do that. You know, you'll end up in hospital with COVID, you know, get your immunisation. And they're like, no, no, no. And he's like, well, you know, I can't help you if you won't have your immunisation. And mm -hmm. so they're just blatantly saying, look, you're an idiot. These people are good. You're stupid. Um, so I think it's really important how we read the text, not just, and sometimes the translations, unfortunately, are not that helpful yeah. in getting that across. Yeah. Yeah, one of the other things I appreciated in your strategy of writing this was that you pointed out not only the negative as well as the positive images of women, but also of men. God isn't just singling out women. He's also using imagery of, of really horrible men and, and so forth. So God is a, an equal opportunity, you know, saying humanity, you know, of my people. So, uh, so was that something that was, uh, that you, you noticed um, specifically to try to help women deal like it's he's not singling you out yes um i i actually went in like 
what is happening in this book? I'm like, oh, this is awful. And then I thought, well, I've got to look at it really carefully. So one of the things I did, as you say, was go through and, and in the chapter, I list all the awful imagery about men. Men are horrible stallions also, you know, <laughs> lustful stallions. Uh, there's another one where men um, in Chapter 13 before the one where the women, where the female figure, it's not real women, the female figure is stripped. And the men are like the dirty underpants of God. Like that is, you know, you don't hear many sermons about you men are the dirty underpants of God. But um, all of them are imaging the nation, right? They're imaging the nation. And if you go through the book, the only time that women are mentioned as actually sinning is when they're making cakes for the Queen of Heaven. There's no sexual immorality by women in the book. And it's stressed each time they're making the cakes for the Queen of Heaven that the men are um, the children are gathering the sticks and the men are making the fires and the women are baking the bread. The whole family's involved. And in Chapter 44, the men say, look, do you think that our wives did this without our help? And the wives say, do you think we did this without the husband's help? So it's emphasising all, all, all need to repent and are guilty. Um, not, you know, just because they're using the female imagery doesn't mean that they're singling out the sins of women. And that, that was really, I mean, it's, it's well known in the scholarship, but I hadn't, you know, seen that for myself by reading every single word yeah yeah but that's very helpful in in reading it uh one of the other terms that you use describing prophecy is time full rather than time less could you tell us a little bit about that yeah yeah this this is a wonderful idea from john swinton who is actually writing about disability and he says like western people we're so like you know hurry up it's time blah 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 but for if we enter this kind of time full nature of time where you know it's what it is at the time. So I use I, I slightly change how I use that, but I got the concept from him to say that every prophecy is so connected to the time in which it was given. So, for example, these prophecies of doom in Jeremiah, the thing's urgent, like the Babylonians are at the door. It's like, you know, some foreign country is, you know, the, the, the planes are actually hovering over the U.S., and it's like, come on, friends, this is urgent. You know, like we can't talk about this next year. We've got to do it now. And so um, we have to read it in that shape. The Babylonians are at the door. The people for over 23 years, it says in Chapter 25, have not listened, have not responded. And so, um, you know, we can read that, but it's a letter to someone else. It's not a letter to us. So we can't say, oh, look at this prophecy. God is, you know, going to strip all the women of the world. No, no. He's saying, look, friends, if you aren't careful, there'll be a disaster. But please turn back. The whole book is full of God's tears. Please turn back. Please turn back. Please trust me. Please don't trust those bad guys. They're out to get you. And so it's so helpful, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And how uh, I think that's so important that we read it in the context. Um, What would you say for people today? What do we get out of Jeremiah, both men and women? What do we get? How should we understand its word for us today? Yeah, um, I think there's a couple of things that I I just totally love about Jeremiah that I haven't got so clearly from other texts, though of course they're there. Um, the first one is that tears thing. God's tears are all over Jeremiah. You know, he weeps, he gets like a stomach pain. Uh, you know, it, it's just so god's passion for his people even though they're they're really wicked like it's not like his favorite it's not philippians where he says i'm so pleased to see you he's like oh friends you know you're really not doing well but he's weeping because he's heartbroken that things are going wrong for them so i love that and jeremiah weeps as well 
you know, it's not just like, oh, well, God's crying and ha, 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 I'm looking forward to you being smashed. But both God and Jeremiah weep um, through the book, and that is really important to me. And the second one is, in the end of Jeremiah 9, God says, look, the problem with you guys, you so-called wise people, is you don't know me. I am the God who loves justice and faithfulness and uh, righteousness. And if you get on board with that, you'll you'll understand me. But while you are, um, while you are, you know, going off on all these wrong tracks, you you don't know me, and you're just completely on the wrong track. So I just found it very helpful to think about knowing God as a really big theme of Jeremiah, which God um, brings into focus in in that in that little statement, which helps us to as a lens if He is the righteous. God who's faithful and just and that's what he's interested in he's not likely to go around raping people or you know hating them or all these things that people bring in um, with a hermeneutic of suspicion yeah I I think I've I've been reading about the hermeneutics of trust where we go in thinking reading with the grain thinking God wrote this book what is he out to say rather than thinking oh perhaps he's really trying to trick us or something like that yeah that's so helpful great so um, could I take it forward a little bit and ask what projects you're working on now and what, uh, what is motivating you currently in your new projects? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I've got a few projects. Right now I'm writing uh, a chapter on wise women of Jeremiah. So somebody um, asked me to write a chapter and it was a fairly open brief. And I thought, well, I've written a lot about the, <laughs> the, the painful and, and foolish you know, the painful images and the foolish women of Jeremiah, which is what I've dealt with in my book uh, in that chapter. So I thought I'll look at the wise women. In chapter nine, it says, call for the wise women. And this is what I want you to say. God calls the women in as his allies to put the message out. And it's a really important part of the book. And the women's mourning is a very significant part of the book, but it's often taken to indicate the pain of the women rather than their online with God, what he's doing. So that's something I'm writing right now. Um, Next year, I hope to finish my book on Psalms, which is my PhD was on Psalms. And every year since 2016, I thought I should finish that book. So I work on it and then it gets overwhelmed. So next year, I'm hoping to focus on that. And then after that, the big project is a commentary on Jeremiah um, for um, Cascade, which I I have a few years to finish. But when I get the Psalms book out of the way, I'll go back to Jeremiah. So I, I do have the first love of Psalms, but I, I've been a bit overtaken by my second love of Jeremiah. Yeah, wonderful. I really look forward to seeing your Psalms book come out. That will be rich. Thank you. Yes, and in the meantime, we, I just can't recommend, both Ingrid and I can't recommend enough your book, Grounded, Grounded in the Body, in Time and Place, and in Scripture. It's just a fantastic window into uh, women's lives, but in, in a very rich, spiritual, reflective way. You've led us through with, with Jeremiah. So thoughtful, so many insights, uh, just really terrific. I'm so glad that you and uh, Denise uh, pulled that all together. We appreciate that, uh, that so much for uh, giving women voice. Uh, so thank you very much, Jill. Thank you for uh, getting up early on a Saturday morning and, uh, and joining us on Alabaster Jar. It's terrific. Thanks for having me, Lynn and Ingrid. It's been tremendous to get together as well as to uh, talk about these very precious things. Thank you. 
You've been listening to another episode of The Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. If you enjoyed this week's episode, share it with a friend and click subscribe so that you will be notified every week when we upload a brand new episode. We've left a link for you in the podcast description if you would like to pick up a copy of Grounded in the Body, In Time and Place, in Scripture, a collective of papers by Australian women scholars in the evangelical tradition. 